Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Oh my goodness, I see some familiar faces and lots of, lots of warm embraces this morning. It's good to be back. Uh, we are, uh, my family right now is cross-continental. Is that even a phrase or am I making up words here? Uh, as many of you know, my husband William and I have been living in Nigeria. We took our children with us. Don't worry, we didn't leave them here. Uh, And we've been living there for about a year now, but have been doing ministry in Nigeria for many, many years. My husband is born and raised in Nigeria. He is Nigerian. And uh, we've been having small little ventures that we've been doing to help people get jobs in Nigeria for, gosh, our entire marriage. And when we merged churches with Horizon West and come to get, came together to become this beautiful community, we were kind of freed up to go full time and do the work that we had been doing over back and forth um, for so long. And so we've been there for about a year. We created a nonprofit where we train people and empower people who are aspiring business owners but really living a life of poverty. And we teach them how to start businesses and be able to um, create jobs for themselves and others in the community to get people out of the cycle of poverty. We also have a for-profit that we work together with our nonprofit to be a social enterprise, and our sole purpose is to create jobs for people in poverty. So the two together are what we work on as a family. We've been there, and things have been good, mostly. Uh, Back in March, our daughter came down with a fever of 104.6 and it lasted for about four days in the hospital, and we knew something was severely wrong. She was diagnosed with malaria, and we were, we knew it was worse than what we'd thought because all three of my family members got malaria in the fall of last year, and they have a pretty strong uh, treatment pr- plan there. It's about three days, and on about day two and a half, you're feeling better, uh, which for me, My friends that have gotten malaria from being in Africa have almost died because our treatment plan here in America is just not adequate because we don't have it. So my daughter got malaria, had 104.6. When we were going on about day four, I knew something was probably misdiagnosed. And we were praying and after watching this little seven-year-old who is already pretty petite as it is, kind of waste away before your eyes, not Uh, eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, not opening her eyes, curled in a ball, shaking all the time. They couldn't find veins and crying in the bathroom, not knowing when would be a minute too late where we didn't do something drastic. And after a bit of time, we realized we had to go. We took the IV out of her arm and carried her all the way to another hospital to which all of her... um, I'm going to cry. All of her, uh, her blood work was redone, and they found she didn't have malaria at all. 
and she had some type of infection, which to this day they don't know what really was, some kind of throat infection. So after eight days in the hospital, she finally recovered, and uh, we knew at that moment that we had to start praying about, is this a place for our children long term? So we continued to work there and we continued to do the work. We were changed and amazed by the stories and the life and the resilience of Nigerian people. Uh, but about a month ago, some things happened in our city. Uh, many of you have probably heard of a terrorist group that uh, came in. They've been in Nigeria for many years and a couple of years ago, they kidnapped over 200 girls from our country that terrorist group moved into our city and began to work pretty, um, I don't know, what's the word? Not vividly, but pretty viciously. There you go. I know English a little bit. And uh, they bombed a local prison uh, with AK-47s uh, with the intent to get their prisoners out, those who have been on their team, to do work. Over a thousand prisoners were released into the community and they set up camps all over our city they began to attack the president, the military convoys, and killed multiple people, threatening to kidnap uh, whoever they could, including the president. They shut down all of the schools. So we knew in this moment, things were probably, we had to make some decisions as a family. So within 48 hours, we prayed and asked God for a confirmation, and we redirected me and the kids, we changed flights, we put everything we could into one suitcase, and me and the kids, flew back to America with no notice. We've been staying in some wonderful homes. Right here, our church family's opened a home for us. Uh, people have given us a car. We have been so blessed. We finally got the kids into school, but my husband is still there doing the work, and we are here. Um, and a lot of you I've seen, and I'm so excited to hear how you guys are doing, and I ask you guys, like, what's going on? And, I get the response often, very common, where people are like, oh, my life is nothing compared to yours. Let's talk about yours. And then I explain to them what's going on, and then I want to say, There's, my life is nothing compared to theirs. Like, I know people there who couldn't just get up and leave. I know people who have to change their work schedules so they don't leave at night so that it's not dark, so that they don't risk their lives just getting home to their family. Mine is nothing compared to them. Mine is nothing compared to the young woman that works for us who's 36 years old. I say young. She's just barely younger than me. She's a baby. Her oldest, she's a, mother of, she's a single mother of four. Her oldest is 21 years old. She also takes care of her younger sister, who also takes care of their younger sister's three-year-old daughter. So there are seven in the family. She works for us. And William doesn't come home because of her. Because she and the seven and then others, we have about 40 people that rely on us for their income and their family and their livelihood. And my life, my situation, the trauma, the therapy that I need has nothing, is nothing in comparison to hers. It's nothing in comparison to her saving up her life savings, putting it into uh, there you can't pay rent on a monthly basis. You pay it annually because they don't trust anyone. And so she saved up her life savings, which was about 500,000 Naira, which is roughly 1,000 US dollars. And she paid for a year in a brand new build, uh, one bedroom house for seven people. When she gave them the money, they no longer had any type of incentive to finish the build. 
So the seven moved into a house with no locks on the doors and no working faucet, among other things. They lived in this house for about three months before she came home one day to a bulldozer, bulldozing it down and looters stealing her things. She sends me a video of her screaming in the background as everything she's worked for her whole life is torn to the ground. You see, the people who built the house and sold it to her were scammers. They didn't own the land. And so when the landowner came and found his property stolen from him, he did what any landowner would do, and he took it back. And this woman, 36 years old, 35 years old, 35, she's 35, 36, 36, her son is 21, of seven, is now without a home and without a place to go has to disperse her children to different family members. See, my story and my trauma is nothing in comparison to the young man in our mentorship program who lived in a state that was pretty much overrun by terrorism. He was a local farmer. He provided for his wife, his two children, her two parents, and his two parents, eight people. And one day, a tribe of nomadic herders comes through with their herd of cows and livestock, and they overrun his crops. When asking him, like, what did you do? Did you stand up for yourself? Did you go to the police? He knew there was no option. He said, my family's life would be at risk if I said anything. So instead of being able to defend himself and his livelihood and his family, he picked up and ran to FCT, which is our state, and he took a menial job as a gardener, making 30,000 naira a month, roughly 60 US dollars. He sends that money home to take care of eight people, and also pay for the house he's currently living in in order to make ends meet. And when months are bad and all the gardeners come back to at the end of the day of their work with one less tool or too much water used, the owner of the company doesn't know what to do other than to take that amount that was either stolen or lost and divide it amongst all their paychecks and take it out. So very often, sometimes he comes home with 16,000, roughly 26 US dollars for eight people. When I met him, he had the biggest smile on his face. And he's in our program now, he's learning how to start his own business, to take his craftsmanship and his work as a farmer here to his state and be able to provide a better living for his family. My story is nothing compared to theirs. When we hear these stories, oftentimes we are faced with some very, very difficult questions about suffering. And we've been in this series about the end times and Pastor Chris left us in this space where we really had to grapple with suffering. What does it mean? Why do we have to experience it? And so today, I want us to look through a scripture where we see people who've been suffering have an account with Jesus, have a moment with Jesus, and we want to see what Jesus did in the midst of suffering and what we can learn from some of the deepest, hardest questions we as humans are forced to ask in the midst of suffering. Let's read. We're going to turn to John 11. And we're going to kind of go through this chapter, but kind of jump through some of the scriptures in order to paint a clear picture. So we'll read through this. It's going to be quite uh, extensive, but then we'll dig through some of these questions and pull it out more fully. Here, I'll read from here because I can't see this screen right here. My eyes are getting old. <laughs> John 11, 1 through 17, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
This Mary, whose brother, Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Let's jump to verse 11. After, this, he, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, will he get better? Here, he will get better. Sorry about that. He'll get better. He'll just wake up, right? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant a natural sleep. So when he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and, he's, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now Jesus goes to the tomb at this point and then it says in verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and the dead man came out. Verse 45, therefore many Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. I love this story because it answers so many of the hardest questions we have as humanity. We are forced to ask questions to God. And sometimes, most often, we point them at the world, the universe, people, other people, and we use these questions to be reasons why we don't engage fully with the God of creation, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But today we're going to take those questions, we're going to point them at Jesus, and we're going to say, God, give us answers. So here are the biggest three questions that we have as humanity when it comes to suffering, and here's how we're going to point them to Jesus. Number one, our question is, God, where are you? Right? God, where are you? In the midst of suffering, where are you? And in verse 35, we see that Jesus said he was weeping. We saw that he was weeping. 
I guess the question kind of goes deeper than this though, right? Like, if there was a loving God, why would he allow suffering? How many of us have heard this question, thought this question? I ask this all the time, right? If there was a loving or good God, why would he allow suffering? And the Bible sprinkles through and through the entire New Testament and Old Testament reasons why suffering exists. But let me stop for a moment and think philosophically about this. If there wasn't a world of suffering, let's imagine, what would the questions we ask be? If every time I walked out of my house and I made a choice, God came in, intervened, and took out any negative, any suffering, any possible horrible consequence of my actions simply because it wasn't his will, what kind of God would that be? Imagine a whole world where we have free will, but technically we don't where technically we make choices, but God takes away any negative consequences because that is not his will. I think in a world like that, our questions wouldn't go away. Our question would simply change. And the question we would now be asking is, why would I serve a God that is manipulative, coercive, and unloving? And these are the two realities of the questions we could ask in this life. And so looking at the question we have now of like, God, why would you allow suffering? That question is easier actually to answer than a question that says, why would we serve an unloving God? So we know that he's loving and suffering is the very evidence of his love, right? We know that this is the question we get to answer, but sometimes it even takes us to one level deeper of God, where were you? Where were you when my husband or spouse walked out on me? Where were you when I watched my home get bulldozed to the ground and my, home, the, my things in my home get looted? Where were you when I was abused as a child? Where were you when my father screamed those words at me? Where were you when my business went under? and I didn't know how I was gonna provide for my family. Where were you when I was bullied on cyberspace, media, right, whatever it is? Where were you, God, when I felt like there was nothing left other than leaving this earth? Where were you? And we see in scripture in verse four and five, right, that Jesus, there was this weird verse, and when we pass these verses, we have to kind of stop and actually like ask the hard questions. In verse four and five, when when Jesus found out that Lazarus was dying, it said because of his love, he didn't go. Did anybody catch that? Were you kind of like, this is weird. Like because of your love, you should go, right? It, it makes logical sense that if you love someone, you would go and you would heal them, you would save them, you would find a doctor, you would something, but because of your love, you stayed? When we are in these moments where we are having a hard time figuring out where God was in the midst of our pain and suffering, what we find from this passage is that Jesus could have went, but he's saying that would have been the unloving option. If he went and healed him before he died, that's one of hundreds, right? Jesus has so many accounts of healing in the New Testament, but he wanted something better for them because of his love for them. 
Because he knew that if he allowed him to pass in his physical death and raised him to life, not only could he have him alive and show a miracle, but he could raise their spirits to life too. And he wanted the greater gift for those he loved. You see, what we know is that in the midst of our pain and suffering and when it's hard to find God, he's still there and he's choosing the path of your greatest good. Even if we don't know. Mary and Martha didn't know. They had no idea why he wasn't coming. In fact, we know this because when Martha went out to meet him, she really went to confront him. Like, dude, where were you at? Right? All my type A personalities in here, like, we be fixing stuff. We're like, I'm going to manipulate people, change my words, fix things. I'm going to go find a doctor. We do everything we can to control the suffering, right? Because somehow we're afraid that God's not going to come through or he's not going to show up or maybe he's going to show up, but maybe two days too late. But what we know when we answer this question, when we direct it at the God who can answer it, is that he's weeping with us and that he's working for our greater good, even when it doesn't feel like it. The second question is, is my pain valid? Is my pain valid? Well, you might be like, I've never asked that question. I know it's a very specific question, but let me prove to you that we ask this all the time. You see, when I first started and I told you about how I came back and people were like, my pain is nothing compared to yours. And I'm like, no, my pain's nothing compared to theirs, right? This is what we do as humans. This is the way we ask whether we are worthy enough or our pain is bad enough to be felt. We create hierarchies of pain and we decide who is allowed to feel and who is not. But look at what Jesus did. In verse 45 and 46, it says that Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Not because he was sad that Lazarus died. Not because he was hopeless or worried. Not because he didn't know the outcome. He knew he was about to raise him from the dead. He knew he was about to see a dead man walking. But he cried. Why did he cry? It says because his heart was troubled when he saw them weeping. You see, we sometimes don't allow ourselves to feel until we have this like perfectly wrapped up story that we can tell the testimony and the moral of the story is this. We wait till the end when it's hindsight and we can kind of stand on a stage and be like, this is what God did in all of it and this is where he was. But we don't like to stop in the midst of it and say, I don't know. And I'm struggling. I don't know where God is, but you know what? I'm right here and I'm waiting for him. You see, the world doesn't need another person that's going to say pithy, smart little sayings of why things happen in the name of Jesus. God will not give you what you cannot handle. God wanted him to be home earlier than you thought he did. He really loved him. Now he's there, right? The world doesn't need that. They're tired. They're exhausted. We are tired and exhausted. What the world needs is people to stop comparing their pain, stop slapping ourselves on the hand saying, how dare I feel? And us starting to be authentic before God, our creator, and have a moment like Mary did on our knees, weeping with the God of creation. Because it is in those moments that we know him, that we find him. But often we're steered towards this Martha mentality. 
where we work, we put it all together, we even change our words. Notice in that passage, she talked to Jesus and she said, Lord. But then when she went back to her sister, she called him teacher. Why? Right? Where are my people pleasers at, right? We say what people, we're like, oh, they will accept this, so I'll say it the way they want to hear it, right? Or maybe we do it and we don't realize we're actually trying to kind of control the situation. If I call him teacher, maybe she'll be more willing to go because right now she don't want to hear from Lord. She just poured her perfume out on him and he didn't show up for her. But maybe if she goes, she'll be just the right amount of emotional pull and Jesus will be convinced to do something. So we're, we're, see, we're seeing these two examples of what comparing can do. Comparing does have sometimes good outcomes, right? You can compare and you can go, I have perspective. It's like a support group. Others have gone through it. They've survived. I know I'm going to be okay. But the equally opposite negative side is that we miss a chance to meet with Jesus and others miss a chance to see the glory of God in the midst of our suffering. The third question is why? Why? I almost gave this sermon a title. I was going to call it The Problem of Suffering, The Promise of Healing. It actually is the title of a course I took in undergraduate school. My professor, he was this jolly old man, looked a little bit like Santa Claus, kind of thick. He had a belly, a big white beard. His name was Dr. Donald Baldwin. And the entire class was all about teaching us the theology of suffering and why suffering exists and how it stands in the gap with the scriptures that talk about the promise of healing. He taught us how scripture tells us in verse 45 that the purpose of this is to reveal God's glory. And this man showed up every single week. He was diagnosed with cancer during that class. You saw him waste away from this thick old man to skin and bones, his cheeks sunken in and his skin turned green. The last day I ever saw him, he was wheeled in on a wheelchair by his daughter. He died in the middle of our class. Suffering. The purpose of suffering is to reveal God's glory. He showed us goodness and grace and commitment and kindness and love in the midst of his suffering. And I saw Jesus every single day. You see, in the midst of what we do, in the midst of what you guys do and live in your work and your life, suffering gets to point us to the God of creation. You see, right here in our community, I'm pointed to Jesus by the suffering of some of my close friends, Marty and April Rogers. They have four grown boys over six feet tall, two of which have severe special needs. I see Jesus in them every single day when they authentically tell me how they're doing today. And yet they're unwavering in their walk with God. When Marty drops off ribs, barbecue ribs at my house with all the sides and the fixings, mm, best food ever, I see Jesus. Because I know that this man tries to feed four grown boys every single day, some of which are by mouth, hand-fed, some is through tubes, and he goes out of his way to show me the hospitality of the kingdom of God. You see, I see Jesus in a single mom in this community of six kids. Jesse Correa, 
She sits in this congregation many times and I see her because every day she gets up and goes to work and she has a resilience like I've never seen before. I look at her and I see the hand of God in her suffering. I see God in a young woman who's in our mentorship program. When she came in to interview for our program, we asked them all kinds of questions about their family and how they're being supported to make sure that they qualify and that they are low income. I asked her about her father and through her glasses, tears just began to stream down her face. I didn't know what to do. I was in a new culture. I was in this professional setting. We have suits on. I'm like, do I hug her? Do I kiss her? Do I hold her? Do I give her Kleenex? I don't know, and I froze. She tells me, my father was kidnapped four months ago. Since then, it's been about seven months. It's been about a year. This young woman in her 20s is now the breadwinner for her younger siblings of five and her mother as she learns to create her own business to be able to send them to school. I see Jesus in her every single day, in her resilience, in her commitment, in her love, in her hope. I see the glory of God in Reuben for his selflessness, in David for his integrity, in blessing for her strength. I see it in patience. I see it in Samuel for his joy for the Lord and for life. I see it in Patricia for her unwavering commitment to her work and her team. I see it in Linus. Linus, man. I love that guy. I see the glory of God in his love for innovation and to solve the problems of his people in Nigeria. His, in his unwillingness to give up. I see it in Rahab with her hope and long suffering for her children and grandchildren. You see, in the midst of suffering, we ask God certain questions. Where are you? Where were you? Is my pain valid and why? But sometimes these lead us back to questions for ourselves. Am I allowing my suffering to be one that is lived authentically so that I can meet with the creator of the universe and others can see his glory? And am I reflecting that glory onto the world? Your pain matters. It's valid. It's part of the plan. It doesn't matter whether you have no food or no electricity or whether you were Miss America and you had mental health issues. It doesn't matter. Your pain has purpose. All of this suffering and pain has purpose and meaning and we can go this whole route of life and reflect the beauty and glory of God onto others. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, there are some really, really hard questions in this life that often we direct onto people or things or just out into the universe, but God, you are so great that you can handle them all. You are as big as you say you are, and today we step into our trust of you being that big. We ask you those questions, God, and then we ask ourselves the questions that allow us to stand as witness for your glory, God. 
We thank you, God, that you are a God that does not control every move, that gives us free will. And that your promise to us is that not everything won't be perfect, but that you will be with us. And that this kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is not one where one group of people is constantly giving and one group of people is constantly receiving, but a kingdom where we are learning from one another, where we give to one another, where we get to stand in Horizon West and we get to learn from the glory of God in Nigeria. We get to be moved by the work you're doing in the people and the resilience of their suffering. And we get to be brought back home to our own and validated that you are a God who even cares about us and our pain. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and that you are waiting for us to weep with you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are working all things out for our good. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.